Welcome to the podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we're going to read through verse 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, Almighty and everlasting God, we do thank you for your word, that your word shines like light into our darkness. And I do pray that we would have unveiled eyes, unveiled by your spirit to behold Christ Jesus, to behold who you have revealed yourself to be in Christ Jesus. Even as we we delve into deep ideas, God, I pray that you would give us clarity. But more than understanding, I pray that you would lead us to be a people that worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I also pray for the members of our congregation and the members of our community that are sick right now. In this moment, I pray that you would grant healing and restoration. And in all things, Lord, we look to you and we ask that you would come among us, that you would be with us, that you would form us and shape us by the power of your spirit to look more like Christ and to display the beauty of your gospel to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat today. This morning, we are continuing our journey through the letter to the Roman church. And in this letter, Paul intends to take the church of Rome on this very ornate theological journey. He desires to unfold the contours of the gospel in higher definition than he does in any other New Testament letter. Thus far, Paul has introduced himself. He's identified himself as an apostle, a sent one from God. He has addressed his readers in Rome, the unlikely Christians who dwell in the very heart of the empire. And he has even stated his thesis that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile, that this is good news indeed for all people. Now, with those anchor points established, he will now launch into the very first phase of the long message that he has to say in the book of Romans. And that first phase of his message is to convince all of his readers, including us, that Jesus is indeed our only hope. 
That, that Jesus isn't just some add-on extra that we can attach to a good life. That, that he is not just something that we can consider as an augment um, to the best life that we would like to live. No, Christ truly is our everything because he is our only hope. He wants to convince his readers, including us, of our desperate and cosmic need for salvation that only Christ can bring. Our desperate and cosmic need for the gospel. In other words, before we can truly realize how glorious and how good the gospel truly is, we have to understand the reality of the bad news concerning our situation outside of Christ. Salvation is necessary only if there is something that we need to be saved from. Grace only works if there is a guilt that exists that needs to be forgiven. And so, the passage that we are reading today operates almost like an opening argument from a prosecuting attorney. An attorney who seeks to convince us, to convince the jury of the guilt of the accused. And who are the accused? Well, we are. This is about us outside of Christ. Paul is painting a picture of what life outside of Christ truly is. And as we'll find, not only is Paul an attorney, he's an exceptionally brilliant attorney. The way that he makes his argument and how that argument takes shape is very surprising. It's very unexpected. He makes moves that we could not anticipate. And so for the rest of our time today, I want to unfold three very surprising ideas from Paul's argument that exposes our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those ideas are, number one, the knowledge about God. Number two, the substitutes for God. And number three, the wrath of God. And by way of warning today, I will admit that we are going to be swimming and diving into deep waters. Sometimes the greatest treasures lie within the greatest depths. So let's get started. Point number one, the knowledge about God. Now today, there are quite a few popular culture voices that mock people of faith for believing in such thing as a God. They will say, there's no evidence. They will claim that faith is the exact opposite of reason. They will go so far to say is, if you claim to have faith in a triune personal God that is revealed in, by the Christian faith in the Christian Bible, then what's any different than that in me believing in a flying spaghetti monster? There's no difference. There's just as much evidence for God as there is evidence for a giant flying spaghetti monster. And just so you know, I'm not making that idea up. I'm not making up that image. The whole idea of this flying spaghetti monster is actually something that is a, a live idea in the atheist and agnostic community that they've designed to kind of mock people of faith, saying that basically there, there's no fundamental difference of believing in a personal God and believing in something as ridiculous as a flying spaghetti monster. It's something that is designed as a satire against religion in general and belief in the Christian God in particular. And the reason I bring this up is because there really was a time in my life where I would have been on that side of the equation. There was a time in my life where I would have pridefully looked down upon people of faith as well. I was definitely curious about God, and I even considered myself to be a spiritual person. But I wasn't going to believe in the Christian God unless I saw some irrefutable evidence for his existence. 
Unless I was able to encounter some type of sophisticated proof that would satisfy my intellectual arrogance. And that's why what Paul does here in chapter, of Rome, in, in chapter 1 of Romans absolutely confounded me the first time I truly read it. Notice what Paul does not do. He does not argue for the existence of God. He does not attempt to lay out a carefully constructed rational proof. He he does not appeal to sophisticated, intelligent design arguments. He simply tells his readers, let's be honest, in your heart of hearts, you already know that there is a God to whom you are accountable. So what he says, look at verse 19 of our text today. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. To be human is to, at some level, have an inherent awareness of divinity. Even if it is doubted, even if it's suppressed, humans have been confronted with the ever-present reality of God. We intuitively know that there is one to whom we owe our being and to one to whom we are obligated to serve. That's why the vast majority of human beings in all of human history, from every human culture on every continent on this planet, have held to some sort of spirituality, some sort of religious expression that acknowledges that there is something transcendent, something that is holy, something that is above and beyond us. As the great Protestant reformer John Calvin once wrote, there is within the human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy. What he's saying and what Paul is saying is we have within us this innately revealed knowledge that there is an eternal God who is the very fountain and the very foundation of all of reality. And Paul is boldly claiming that that knowledge is universally present across all types of human cultures. This innate, revealed knowledge of God's existence is why we grieve, rightfully so, when the world is not the way that it should be. When we encounter suffering, when we encounter pain, when we encounter the true reality of evil in in, in the broken creation in which we live, We say in our hearts, this is not the way that it should be. And the reason we say that is because we know in our heart of hearts that there is a way that the world should be. That there is a way in which a creator God has designed this universe, this cosmos with intention. We know that there are such things as meaning and morality. That meaning and morality are not just some arbitrary inventions of the human mind. We recognize that there is such things as goodness and truth and beauty, and that's also why we recoil at their opposites. At our core, we know that not only is there a difference between good and what is evil, we know that there is a sense of moral obligation to do what is right and to say what is true. That moral sense of obligation really is interesting because it means that even though we can disagree on what is right and wrong, all humankind not only believes that there's such thing as good and wrong, but that we are, are obligated to do what is right. That sense of moral obligation is unexplainable. It is impossible outside of the existence of a personal God who is the standard 
and the judge of what is right and what is true. However, just because we all have this innate knowledge of God does not mean that we all worship God. All we have to do is look at human society. All we have to do is look at human history to see that that much is true. In fact, the sad reality of fallen human nature is that we, by nature, resist and we resent the lordship of God. We, we are confronted with the reality of an authority that is greater than us, an authority to which we are obligated, and we resist and we actively suppress that truth. We suppress the truth of God in our hearts and our minds because we do not like the ramifications of that truth. Thus, for those that have eyes to see, the evidence of God's reality is all around us. But for those that wish to suppress that truth, no evidence for God's existence could ever be enough. For in the place of the one true God, our hearts have turned inward and outward instead of upward. And that leads us to our second point, point number two, the substitutes for God. Here the Apostle Paul makes yet another very surprising, unexpected argument. He will show us that at the very heart of irreligion, there remains a religious level of devotion to something. At the very heart of our rejection of God, there is the reality that we have exalted and substituted something else into the place of God. Let's look back at the text, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, there is something really interesting that's going on in these last few verses that might not be apparent at first glance. Paul is intentionally loading these verses with specific words, specific language that derive from Genesis chapter 1, particularly The passage in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates man and woman in his image and then gives dominion over creation to his image bearers. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And all the words that I have bolded are words that also appear in Romans chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By using this language, Paul is showing us what sin does. Sin twists and distorts and unravels the goodness of God's creation. It turns upside down the way God has designed things to be. Instead of worshiping God and bearing his image, humanity rejects the lordship of God and worships creation rather than the creator. Instead of having dominion over creation, our disordered desires subject us to and enslave us under the tyranny of sin. In the Bible, there is a technical term for worshiping some aspect of creation in place of the creator. And the name of that term is idolatry. Idolatry is what happens when we take anything. It could even be something that is a very good thing and we make it into an ultimate thing. It's what happens when we 
have a God substitute that becomes something that captivates our imagination, something that demands our allegiance, something that becomes a central and non-negotiable part of our identity. Our disordered desires beget idols, and those idols beget sins that destroy individuals and marriages and families, communities, nations, a very unraveling of God's good creation. As the biblical scholar Ernst Kasemann once wrote, idolatry opens the floodgates for vices which destroy society and turn creation back into terrible chaos. Next week, when we conclude the rest of chapter 1 of Romans, uh, we will see that there is a whole constellation of sins and sinful behaviors that flow from our worship of various idols. In fact, I had initially planned to preach the remainder of chapter 1 today, but I decided that I needed to dedicate those verses to a sermon by themselves. And if you read ahead, you'll understand why. For now, what I want you to see is that all sin flows from disordered desires of the heart. That sin is the natural outcome of having substituted or exchanged the glory of the immoral God for lesser transient things in creation. In this spiritual condition, the very worst thing that could happen to us is for God to simply allow us to have those idols. The idols that would destroy us and twist us. And that leads us to our final point. Point number three, the wrath of God. In many ways, this passage is framed by the idea of God's wrath. Indeed, it is the first concept that we encounter in the first verse of our reading today. Let's read verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, when you think about the wrath of God, what are the first images that come in your mind? What are the pictures that are formed in your brain? A lot of us, we would think of some cataclysmic biblical judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would think hell, fire, and brimstone. We would think God hurling thunderbolts from the heavens onto earth upon his enemies. That is not the way that Paul presents the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1. Here Paul describes the wrath of God as something that must be revealed. It is a spiritual reality that is initially hidden, but must be unveiled in order to be seen and truly known. What has Paul unveiled about the wrath of God? That's answered in the last few verses of our passage today. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The wrath of God is whenever we choose creation over the creator, and God lets us have what we want. When God gives us over to the lusts of our hearts, our rebellion becomes its own punishment. Our idols become our tyrants. Our sins become our slave masters. And so, if you want to make sex and romance your idol, so be it. But it will shatter and break your heart. If you want to make approval and acceptance your idol, okay. But your life will be terrorized by the fear of man. If you want to make career advancement and ambition your idol, you can chase it. But your soul 
will never know rest. And you may be required to sacrifice your family on the altar of that success. If you want to make power your idol, very well. But you may have to compromise your integrity to acquire it. You may have to sacrifice your virtue to maintain it. If you want to make money and material wealth your idol, go for it. But it will never satisfy you. And you will never feel like you have enough. This is the wrath of God. Unlike Christ, who gives his life to save us and whose kindness leads us to repentance, our idols are cruel and merciless gods. They demand allegiance and promise judgment if they are not appeased by our sacrifices. Our idols never fail to fail us. But here's the thing. Even though our idols abuse us and oppress us, many times our gut response, our gut reaction is to defend our idols with hostility if they are ever challenged or confronted. I can tell you, as someone who has preached the word of God for the last 15 years, I most certainly know when I have stumbled upon an idol. I most certainly know when I have preached upon an idol. We revolt with irrational anger when our idols are named and unmasked by the word of God. But here is what I want you to see. When God, through his word, confronts our idols, it is not his wrath. It is his mercy. This is mercy. It is his love to unmask the idols that would tyrannize us. Jesus is Lord. That means that all other gods must be dethroned in our hearts. Our creator, our redeemer, our glorious God is worthy of more than half-hearted allegiance and lukewarm devotion. As God spoke to Moses in giving him the Ten Commandments, the very first words of those commandments are, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is commandment number one for biblical ethics. That first commandment is an issue of first importance in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. Now, even though these are admittedly deep waters, even though this text is surprising and mysterious in many ways, this particular section of Romans has always been crucial and precious to me. See, when I was a sophomore in college, I really was an agnostic. I truly believed that if I were to believe in God, I needed an irrefutable argument. I needed scientific evidence. And it was this passage. This passage in Romans chapter 1 that showed me that the irrefutable argument had already been made. It was this argument that showed me that the evidence of God's reality was all around me. Scripture forced me to be honest with myself and admit that I already knew that there was a God but that I had suppressed the truth of this knowledge because I did not want to acknowledge the ramifications. I wanted my idols. I wanted my counterfeit gods. I wanted my substitute messiahs. But as the Holy Spirit of God opened my heart, I saw that my idols were leading me to despair and destruction. And for the first time, I understood my desperate cosmic need for the gospel. As that reality of God became unignorable in my heart, I knew that I wasn't smart enough to figure him out. I knew that I wasn't determined enough to perfectly obey his will, and I certainly was not virtuous enough to earn his love and his approval. My only hope, our only hope, is that when we cannot come to God, God has come to us. That when we could not understand God, the Holy Spirit has illuminated our hearts and revealed his reality to us. That when we were unclean in our sin, Christ's perfect righteousness 
would be given to us through faith. I pray that the Holy Spirit of the living God would illuminate that truth in your hearts. That every single person in this room, believer that came into this room as a believer, unbeliever that came into this room, I pray that you would encounter the living God and how he has been revealed through Jesus Christ. I pray that God would open your eyes to see his glory as he did mine 20 years ago. The eternal God whose mystery is sensed in all human hearts and every human culture, has been revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He is better than all idols. He is better than all rivals. He exposes our counterfeit gods in his mercy so that he might satisfy us with infinite joy. So Redeemer, Christian Church, may we know Christ, may we worship him, may we dethrone all the idols of our hearts, and may we embrace and rest in the gift of his mercy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this text that so many years ago opened my heart to acknowledge who you are. Lord, I pray that it would continue to open hearts today, that your Holy Spirit would continue to minister among us. Lord, in your mercy, would you expose where we have maybe exalted something above its station? Would you expose in us that with we have been guilty of taking a good thing in your creation and exalting it to an ultimate thing? Would you expose in us where we have placed something above you? And Lord, I pray that you would be enthroned in our hearts, enthroned in our lives, that we would be those that, that truly understand and know your gospel So that we would be a people that are formed in the image and likeness of Christ. A a people that would be sent to embody the very love and the heart and the character of Christ. Before a watching world that needs to see him. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.